0: Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 22nd, we are studying 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. In today's text, St. Paul tells the Corinthians that they must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but instead they should seek to be cleansed from every defilement of body and spirit. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. So we get started today. Give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to this section of chapter 6?
1: Well, 2 Corinthians has generally a more positive tone than 1 Corinthians does. Uh, as Luther puts it, um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul was pouring sharp wine into the wounds of the uh, the people at the church at Corinth, uh, very much uh, at times a very accusatory type law. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, we do still, of course, have the law of God being proclaimed here, but it is more, um, especially in our what we're reading this morning more of a guiding type of law uh, rather than an accusatory type of law, uh, and so you know as Luther says it in Second Corinthians, you have Paul pouring oil into their wounds—that is, trying to heal them. Uh, and so, um, so that's what you have with the book: is that it is definitely a different tone than First Corinthians, uh, not not as sharp, uh, but still uh, quite a bit of
0: guidance being being given by Paul here. Yeah, Pastor Adam Kuntz referred to Second Corinthians almost in the, the same vein as the pastoral epistles. That there's a you see that. Whereas you know the pastoral epistles, as we n- normally think of them, First, Second Timothy, and Titus are written to pastors. You see a lot of that same pastoral care instruction within Second Corinthians that gives some instruction and some guidance as to what that relationship between a pastor and congregation looks like. And so I think seeing that tone within this letter is is, is right on.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, um, and in particular here in the, in the chapter that leads up to this, uh, St. Paul speaks about the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the apostles being ambassadors of reconciliation. That is that, uh, Christ has reconciled the the church to himself, and they are the ones that are bringing this reconciliation and also calling upon the people to do the same thing, uh, to be reconciled to God, um, and and the way in which that is done of course is by the means of grace that's how one is reconciled to god um and so then as we get into the verses that we have for today that's going to stand in stark contrast to that to that ministry the thing that paul is warning them against
0: yeah so this this section as you as you look at the letter does seem i don't know out of place isn't the right word but it does seem to almost come out of well wait wait a second paul where where is this coming from but so just to, to kind of reiterate what you're saying, it, it seems that the the move is, he's been talking about the ministry of reconciliation that he and the other apostles have have and that they've been exercising there in Corinth. And he's appealed to them to receive this grace of God, not in vain. So you've got the the positive side of things. Here's Here's how you should receive the... and what you should do with this grace, this reconciliation. And then this section now is kind of the the other side of the coin. So if you're going to be reconciled to Christ and you're going to have peace there, that means there's going to be division somewhere else. And that, that seems to be how these things kind of, at least that's how I've tried to fit it together in my mind.
1: Yes. I think that works. Um, It's interesting that you mentioned that there is this kind of almost seems out of place section of second Corinthians uh, because I was reading a, a commentary that, that alluded to that, that theory, Um, and it's actually, oddly enough, it's, it's from the, I have, I have a set of the international critical commentary series on my, Uh. on my shelf, which you can imagine how that's going to fall. Usually They're, they're, they tend to be, uh, more in the line of, was this actually written by this author or not? Uh, and even this critical scholar though, that wrote this commentary said that, Hey, these theories about this being a completely different author or a fragment that's been imported into second Corinthians or something like that. Uh, he said those really don't have much merit. Uh, so I thought that was, that, that speaks to its authenticity whenever even the sharpest critics of the text are able to say, no, this actually is probably St. Paul writing this. So, um, but, but at any rate, yeah, the, uh, uh, it does, it does kind of stand out a little bit. Um, but, but yes, I do think you can fit that in with the idea of, hey, at, standing at odds with this uh, this ministry of reconciliation are uh, are false teachers but also unbelievers and really it's probably more what we're talking about here um uh you know who would who would uh would thwart that that doctrine of reconciliation and would um, would preach a different gospel or you know no gospel at all
0: mm, yeah so i mean kind of like within the within the small catechism when you get to the third petition of the lord's prayer and you pray that thy will be done in the the explanation that luther gives you know, he he acknowledges hey the the devil the world and your sinful nature don't want god's name to be hallowed and don't want god's kingdom to come so so we pray that god would thwart them and so kind of similarly here you've you've got this this a similar thing perhaps going on where paul has said hey here's this ministry of reconciliation But there are are forces, there's there's evil, there are unbelievers that don't want this ministry of reconciliation to come. So it's not only necessary for you to receive this ministry of reconciliation and have the peace with Christ, but then to be separate from those who would fight against this ministry of reconciliation, And and that latter part is what we've got, it seems, in this section. Yeah, for sure. All right, so with those things in mind, let's take a look at this text. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does, an unbelie- does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is the text for today. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. And so, Pastor Vanderkoek, within these questions that come at the beginning, and even before the questions, there's a number of images, but the first one before you get to the, any of the questions is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's the image? How does... Paul use it to introduce this section
1: well it's an agricultural image um, you know you have animals that are yoked together that that uh, piece of wood that's put on the back of usually two oxen or some other type of beast of burden and, uh, and the idea is that uh, and if you've ever seen this before it's actually fascinating to watch I we were in um, uh, visiting my grandma up in Iowa um, uh I don't remember, probably a couple of years ago now. And there's a there's an Amish um, uh, community nearby where she was living at the time. And uh, we had the opportunity to watch a um, uh, an Amish farmer plowing his field with, with animals. It's really pretty neat to watch. Um, but whenever you do that, you of course want two animals that are kind of equal in strength and size and everything else, because if you don't, then you'll end up plowing in a circle or something like that you know if you've got one weak animal and one strong animal together or you know two different types of animals all together uh, it it just won't work Uh, and in fact uh, in deuteronomy 22 you have uh, god speaking through his servant moses uh, and he just quite literally says you shall not plow with an ox and donkey together so there is a practical thing there first of all that it doesn't work well Uh, but, uh, at least whenever, um, God is giving that, that command, that law to his people, uh, there's more going on there than just the impracticality of it. It's also the fact that when it comes to eating animals, oxen were clean. Uh, The people were permitted to eat the flesh of an ox, but they were not permitted to eat the flesh of a donkey. They could use donkeys as uh, work animals, as animals to travel on, but uh, and of course we have you know uh, Mary and Joseph. Of course, uh, had a donkey that they uh, used to get to. Um, is that is that actually now? Now I'm wondering: is that actually in the Bible, or do we just portray it that way? That just I don't popped know. into my head. I'm going to have to look that up later. Um, <laughs> It seems like they probably had one, but I, I don't know if that's just like, you know, every it's picture we pictures. have. It's, it's yeah, all be. the pictures we have is Mary, Mary's riding on a donkey. And now I'm wondering, did Mary actually ride on a donkey or not? Now we got to go look that up later, I guess. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, so donkeys could be used by God's people, but they could not be consumed by God's people. Uh, they were ceremonially unclean uh, for them to eat. Uh, and so there is a contrast here that, that we as 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 Christians, do not want to uh, yoke ourselves, connect ourselves with unbelievers in that fashion. Uh, we are, in a sense, a different, uh, I don't know if species is the right word, but there is a sense in which that is true, is that uh, Christians and, and non-Christians are not of the same um, origin, if you will, even. you know, Because once we've been reborn in Christ, we're no longer... Uh, children of of, of Satan uh, so it it makes that distinction that we're not to be connected in that way I think probably one of the things that that popped into my head when I read this too is that one could see this as standing at odds with um, uh, St. Paul in uh, what is it first Corinthians 9 I think where he says um, uh, uh, where he says that he's become all things to all men you know, and so you have that, that way in which um, St. Paul is saying, you know, I've, uh, I, to, the, to, the, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Greeks, I became a Greek. To the, uh, you know, to the heathens, I became like a heathen. Um, but, you know, we have to understand that in the sense that it's not that St. Paul is condoning them or actually doing the, the evil things that they do, but that he's rather uh, finding a way in which to identify with them. Ah, uh, to find common ground with them in order to uh, bring them to repentance. Um, you know that's that's always the goal of his preaching, just as all Christian preaching is, is to bring uh, bring about repentance and the forgiveness of sins.
0: So I actually have my my Bible flipped to First Corinthians nine because of a different reason. But there, so there's there's two things I think from First Corinthians nine that we can bring to bear on this passage. One is just the way that the Old Testament is used. Uh, you brought up Deuteronomy 22, which talks about literally yoking an, an ox and a donkey together. And, and it's like, well, what does that have to do with, with this? Well, it's, it strikes me that in First Corinthians 9, when Paul is talking about the fact that those who proclaim the gospel should be compensated for that, he also quotes from from the, the law about a, a passage that has to do with animals. He says, this is First Corinthians 9, verse 9, It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then this is what Paul writes about it. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? And so it just, it strikes me that he uses the Old Testament in a similar way here, where he takes what was a very agricultural image and was intended, you know, very intentionally, literally for the people of Israel at the time. Don't put the ox and the donkey and the yoke together. He uses it, Again in a similar way that he used that passage back in 1 Corinthians 9 about animals to apply it to the, the payment of preachers. Here he takes another one and applies it to the matter of, of how we interact with with unbelievers. So so that's the reason I was open to 1 Corinthians 9, which is where you were talking there. and I think the way that he writes there uh, to go to the, the point you made is instructive so that we we would see that Paul's not being unequally yoked with unbelievers in the way that he carries out his ministry. And just to use the example of when he speaks about uh, how he ministers to those who are under the law or not under the law, this is what he says. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he puts in parentheses, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. And then he says next, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So I think with those caveats that he offers you see that he the way you explained his ministry is is the right way to understand it rather than Paul just does like anything goes for the sake of proclaiming the gospel as if that somehow gives him a license to sin or a license to be yoked with unbelievers
1: yeah i think so and and i think that's that's honestly probably the the risk that he's that he's trying to put forward here is that uh, that, that people may try and use that um, uh, use that as an excuse to sin, an excuse to import all types of uh, even foreign practice into the church's practice um, be, in the interest of thinking, oh, I'm going to somehow uh, win people to the gospel. But really, in, in essence, what they're doing is trying to come up with a way to uh, do whatever they want to do um, without having any consequence
0: for it. Yeah. So with this this picture, then do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What what does that what does that mean? What does that look like in terms of the the church's life and practice?
1: Well, I think you can go to. Um, uh, I th- I think you can first of all look at it at, at this this way, and I think this is probably the best way to look at it. It really is talking about unbelievers here, and I think initially uh, my thought was that maybe we're talking about. Um, false teachers within the church um which i mean i guess you could still go that direction on some level but really the word really here is apistos in the greek it is those who have no faith at all uh not even really just the the um uh you know those who might be led away by by false teachers you know there's there's a difference between um false teachers and outright unbelievers. Uh, sometimes there's not, but I, I mean, there is a difference in a sense because uh, false teachers um, may still be believers just having corrupted um, teachings that they purport. And also those who follow false teachers may indeed be believers, but, but have fallen captive to false teachers. I think there is a warning here, but probably more explicitly in other places. <coughs> Excuse me. Here we have more of the de- the dealing of Actual unbelievers being yoked together with them and the risk here. uh, You know, we see this um, in you look at the history of the people of Israel, uh, first of all, and how when God brings them into the promised land, he tells them to basically completely wipe out um, all of the people that live there, uh, which seems like a really harsh thing to do, and unloving thing to do. But the reason that God wants them to do that is because He knows that those th- those those groups that are there with their idolatry will be a snare for His people. Uh, and if they uh, link themselves up with them, if they make alliances with them, if they intermarry with them, it's going to result in drawing the people away from the faith. Uh, you saw this with uh, you know Solomon with his with his many, many wives, uh, how, how destructive it was for uh, for God's people uh, as a nation, and uh, you know, I guess, bring it forward to today. Um, there is that that temptation um, to import some of the things that we see in the world, uh, and quite frankly, in the unbelieving world, into the Christian church. Um, I, I'm trying to think of practical examples, specific examples. Uh, but there is kind of this uh, this effort to try and perhaps Christianize uh, certain things uh, rather than avoid them altogether, which is probably the direction we should go.
0: So, and maybe maybe one very I think obvious application would be the way that that Christians ought to avoid syncretism. What that that term that we would not participate in worship services that are not too try that are not directed to the one true God the triune God we're not going to engage in in practices and worship in vows in in anything that that is going to indicate that we would worship someone other than the one true God I think that would be and that maybe is a it's an easy one but it's it's always important that we we hit the the ones that are obvious too so we don't forget those things
1: yeah certainly um, and in fact this uh, this section of of um of 2 Corinthians is used in, in our Lutheran confessions in uh, the Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, Article 10, dealing with uh, church practices or adiaphora. Um, there are many things, of course, that scripture neither commands nor forbids, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's a free-for-all. Um, there are certain things in the, in the church that we don't do because of the confession that they make, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, we can confess something that we we don't intend to confess, uh, and so practice uh, does matter. Um, and we're not going to borrow practices from uh, from uh, from unbelievers or false teachers, and then try and parade them about as if they are uh, God pleasing.
0: Yeah, that's right. So with and again with this matter of not being unequally yoked, one. I guess when I when I hear this passage, and I'm not sure where I first encountered this, but one of the applications that I've I've heard for this is that Christians should not marry non-Christians. Do you think that that's a, a fair application of this passage? I think Paul's talking about something bigger here, but do you think that's still a, a fair application of, of this passage that deals with the matter of marriage?
1: Well, I think you're right. I think he's talking about something bigger here, but I do think it does have application for marriage. Um my my encouragement to the members of my congregations uh, has been to uh, preferably marry within the within the faith, and by that I mean not just find a Christian to marry, but actually find a Lutheran to marry. Um, because again, what is the most important thing in our life, uh, and what should become what should be the most important thing in our life? Well, it should be our faith. How are you going to maintain your um, your Lutheran faith, if, uh, you know, the thing that you vowed in your confirmation vows, that you would suffer even death rather than forsake, uh, how, how are you going to accomplish that whenever you have the person that you are uniting yourself to in a one flesh union for life that does not have that same confession? Now, I'm talking about even like in within the denomination here, but when you go even outside of Christianity, uh, it becomes an even more acute problem. And of course, I'm not trying to tell everybody that's married to uh, a non-Christian out there to, to seek a divorce immediately, but rather speaking to those who are, are currently unmarried, hey, this stuff needs to matter to you, uh, because the fact is that uh, we see plenty of evidence in the scriptures and, and honestly, just anecdotally in life, that whenever that is not a priority, um, that means generally that uh, regular exercise of the faith usually doesn't happen not saying in all cases but it certainly is a huge risk
0: yeah that's right I mean the image of a, a yoke I think is a helpful one when we think about just the, the way that that works in marriage so you you have in marriage a man and a woman who are joined together as one flesh well if on on Sunday morning you know that one flesh is trying to go in two different directions, again, you think about the, the image of the yoke, that's just not going to work well. Now again, as, as you said, those, those who are currently married, Paul has instructions for that about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and so to stay married is, is good when when we can live together in peace, right? Go to 1 Corinthians 7, he, he gives instructions there about those who are already married, but as you said, for those who are not yet married and considering that good gift that God has, these are things that, that we do well to take To take into account to live faithfully uh, in in what he has given us but yeah this so i do i do think this passage has something to say to that but it's it's broader than that we shouldn't limit it to that i think
1: yeah sure and i and i think this is where you could draw in again uh, and talk about what did what did saint paul write in first corinthians 9 again that he's become all things to all men the temptation can often be well Maybe we really, really should yoke ourselves to people so that we can bring them along with us. Well, it's good that you want to um, to convert the unbelieving, but let's work on that before you yoke yourself to them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and I think to to attach it also to the, the context of 2 Corinthians and the way that he said in, in chapter 5, he talked about, you know, with this ministry of, of reconciliation, we persuade others— and we, we talked about what that means, that the, the right. persuasion happens only through the proclamation of the word of God. So, you know, how yeah, and connecting it to First Corinthians nine, then well, how do I how do I go about reaching out to those who, who are currently unbelievers? Is it by you know yoking myself to them, doing whatever whatever absolutely I could, or is it always founded in the proclamation of the word of God, particularly? Christ crucified and risen as Paul emphasized again in his first epistle it's always going to be the latter we need to we need to make use of the means that God has given us for the sake of calling unbelievers to faith and not come up with ways that seem good to us but are actually out of bounds from God's revealed will right right yep. yeah yeah. So, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A lot to to unpack there, which which Paul does. He unpacks as he he goes then into a series of questions, all of which are going to have the same answer. You know, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? None. Right. So you keep having questions all going to have the same answer, uh, but there's a lot to consider within these questions because each one picks up a different image or a different facet of an image and adds adds more light to the picture that Paul is painting. So we're going to dig into those various questions and images that Paul brings up more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Vandercook this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
2: Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members, and church workers alike make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 22nd. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook. prior to the break, we were talking about Paul's opening statement, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He proceeds from there to ask a series of questions, each one having a similar answer, but each one using different images. So the first question he asks, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Take us into that first question.
1: Well, as you said before the break, uh, there is no partnership there. Obviously, that's the that's the rhetorical question. That's the answer to the rhetorical question. When we think about righteousness, though, we think about the keeping of the law, um, the doing of the law. Uh, and my mind goes to, to Matthew 5, where Jesus says, um, uh, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. For anybody to uh, enter the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness must ex- exceed the righteousness of the. Scri- <laughs> getting tongue-tied. Uh, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the right the scribes and the Pharisees were actually pretty righteous at keeping the law. But of course, the righteousness that exceeds the uh, that of the scribes and the Pharisees is the righteousness of Christ, mm-hmm. um, and that righteousness credited to us. And, uh, of course, the, the partnership there, the, the opposite of that is lawlessness. That is the opposite. That's, that's what we are, apart from Christ, is that we are lawless. Um, we don't keep the law. Uh, we don't um, uh, do the law. And so those two things stand in direct opposition to each other. One who is righteous is not lawless. One who is lawless
0: is not righteous. Yeah. Well, and I think going to that statement of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount is helpful when we think about what righteousness is, especially in the context of Second Corinthians. It was only back in chapter five at the very end of that chapter where he, he talked about how do we become the righteousness of God? Well, it's when we are in Christ. The one who had no sin became sin for us in order to make us the righteousness of God. So that the the you know, the partnership that does not exist between righteousness and lawlessness. Isn't isn't really a matter of, hey, Christians do really good things and unbelievers do really bad things, but rather it's it's more about this the difference between the righteousness of faith versus the righteousness that I would try to have by by my merits. That's a that's a much bigger thing that's going on here than just like, hey, Christians are better people than than non Christians. Yes,
1: and that ties back in, of course, to the to that ministry of reconcilia- reconciliation that we have been reconciled to Christ, are reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, um, and, and again puts it on Him uh, as the one who who makes us
0: righteous. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is none. The next question: What fellowship has light with darkness? Again, answer is none. Take us into the image here.
1: Yeah, you have these these uh, this this opposing thing again, and uh, of course, uh, you know we're recording this during Advent. I know it's going to air after that, of course, but uh, but during during the season of Epiphany as well, we speak of the light um, uh, shining in the darkness. Um, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light, no darkness is overcome. Uh, to quote from uh, uh, from the from the order of evening prayer. Um, Jesus Christ being that light shining in the darkness, the, the light, those who are lawless, you know, tying us back into the previous question, those who are lawless like to live in the dark. And the reason why is because when you're in the dark, nobody can see what you're doing. Um, and when you're in the light, the light shines on all your deeds. You're in the daytime, everybody can see what's going on. And so, you know, what is, what is the old statement? Nothing good happens after, I don't know, pick a time, 2 AM, you know, whatever, (laughs) uh, Midnight, 10, a. Well, I mean, it gets dark at like 4.30, 430 right now, you know, but uh, the, you know, nothing good happens after a certain time. Why? Because that's whenever all the people that are trying to do evil things do their things, uh, because that's, that's what it is to be in the dark. Uh, but whenever we are in Christ, we're in the light. We're brought into the light, first of all, that reveals our sinfulness, but more than that reveals Christ, who is our light, who is the forgiveness of sins for us. Uh, and so, yeah, the two things, again, are directly opposed to each other. Um, the, the light and the darkness do not have fellowship with one another. Uh, we can't try to continue to do the deeds of darkness when we're
0: living in the light. Hmm. Yeah, and, and again, so the, the, the matter of, you know, like, well, what does that mean to live in the light? Again, it doesn't mean that you're you're sinless, but rather it means that you have this righteousness of Christ that comes through the ministry of reconciliation, as i was you know just reading through this it this particular sentence struck me as sounding like it could have come from the the first epistle that john writes you know in that first chapter yeah. he he talks about this <clears throat> fellowship between light and darkness that does not exist and and what happens if you claim to have fellowship with the light but you're walking in darkness and he, and then talks about well that's like if you you try to say you have no sin then you're deceiving yourselves then the truth isn't in you then you're in the darkness the, the light, really, is to confess your sins, to, to find your righteousness in your, to use John's language, your advocate, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to to be in the light. And again, there's no fellowship between the light that you have in Christ versus the darkness that, that exists apart from him.
1: Yeah, and just building on what you said there about how uh, living in the light does not mean that uh, you're without sin, again, what does the light do? It reveals things. Um, and so if, if we're living in the light, it, it means, you know, to think about um, uh, Holy Baptism or the Holy Baptism, the section of Holy Baptism from, from the uh, small catechism. Uh, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam is, is by daily contrition uh, drowned, that a new man may daily arise and live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So there's this daily activity where we're daily bringing our sins to light uh, in order that we might be forgiven uh, and,
0: and, and live uh, lives worthy of our calling. Hmm. Now, the next question that Paul asks in verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Help us with that one.
1: Well, first of all, yeah, Belial, uh, literally a word um, that means wicked or worthless, a title for Satan. Uh, so we're talking about the devil here. And of course, uh, what accord do they have? You know, again, they don't have any accord. Uh, they, are, uh, they are opposites. Um, we see the work of Satan in that sin is brought into the world uh, through the disobedience of one man who listens to Satan, that is Adam. And now Christ, the second Adam, uh, is the one who crushes the head of Belial, uh, that is Satan at the cross. And so we have that uh, there is no accord there, of course, because they are uh, sworn enemies. Christ, the offspring of the woman, comes to defeat um, Belial or Satan.
0: Mm. Yeah, the the Greek word there that's translated as accord is it looks an awful lot like the English word symphony. So you know what what symphony does does Christ and Belial have? What what song does does the devil sing that Christ also sings? And again, there's there's none. There's no symphony between. Christ and, and Belial, between Christ and the devil, it reminded me a little bit of, of 1 Corinthians 10, where, and I know we haven't talked specifically about idolatry just yet, but it is about to come up, where where Paul says, you know, look, idols, they're nothing. That's what he, it's part of his argument in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians. Idols are nothing, they're not real, but behind idol worship stands the worship of, stands demons, stands the work of the devil. And so again, to see that, you know, what what connection does does Christ have with Belial how can you be unequally yoked with those who through idolatry through their unbelief are, are yoking themselves to to the devil again there there can be none here right yeah there there are two things that are are just diametrically opposed to each other uh, the next question then or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever help us into that one
1: yeah, well, first of all, we can talk about what the portion of a believer is, and that portion is that we are made heirs. Um, you know, we have that that sonship that's created uh, in our baptism where uh, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and therefore we know that our portion as a believer is, is eternal life. Uh, the unbeliever has none of that. Um, uh, and because, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father but through him. And so... Uh, the unbeliever doesn't share that same portion, doesn't share that same sonship that we have
0: with God. Mm, yeah. So you're I mean you're headed in, in two different directions. I like the the connection of the word portion to the thought of an inheritance where which way is the believer headed to eternal life, which way is the unbeliever headed to eternal death? There is no no share in those portions and they have different inheritances. So again, there cannot be an unequal yoke between Christians and unChristians. Now, in verse sixteen, there there's another question, but it does seem that this is where Paul begins to to make a turn. He asks the question first: What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Help us into to that question.
1: Yeah, when we talk about the temple of God. Uh, first of all, we can talk about the literal building um, that is still in existence at this time. Whenever um, St. Paul's writing this. Uh, but regardless of whether we're talking about the building, the temple, or we're talking as like Ephesians 2.22, where God says that we're, where, where Paul writes that we're being dwell uh, built into a dwelling place for gods. The bottom line is this, the temple is the place where God dwells among his people. And so if we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem, it's the place where God had promised to dwell among his people, um, where they would come and seek his righteousness, where uh, the high priest would would enter into the Holy of Holies each year um, to uh, on the day of atonement to um, uh, to sprinkle the blood of uh, blood of the lamb on the mercy seat of uh, of God. And so we have the place there that God meets his people. uh, But now we have the 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 temple as in the place where God dwells. That is, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us in his word and uh, the bottom line is idols don't belong in the temple. Um, there, there is no agreement with the temple of God and with idols. Now, that doesn't mean nobody's ever tried it before. Um, the uh, uh, I had the opportunity to to preach this past uh, fall, earlier this fall, uh, at the um, uh, at the area Reformation service that we have here in Little Rock, and uh, I I chose to do a free text that day. Uh, which is a little out of character for me. Uh, but I, I did, um, uh, I preached on 2 Kings 23, um, which is where you have uh, Josiah, King Josiah's reign is recorded there. King Josiah was one of the good ones, um, uh, one of the best ones, in fact, that Judah ever had as their king. And um, he removed, they had actually put idols, uh, you know, temp, or I'm sorry, um, uh, altars to idols in the temple. Uh, and so Josiah removes all those idols uh, from the temple as part of his reign, cleaning house, basically, and, uh, and chased out all this idolatry. And so the people of God had tried this before. They had tried to bring um, idols and, and altars and so forth into actually God's temple. I can't think of such an act of desecration. Um, it's, it's I mean, I, I, I just, it blows my mind that that was actually done. Um, but uh, that's that's what we're talking about here, and that's why you know Saint Paul says uh, these things don't have any agreement. You can't put these things
0: together uh, in any way, uh, shape, or form. Well, so yeah, to your Josiah the, is the one who you know gets rid of the idols. the The account that really stands out from the Old Testament in my mind about them putting the idols in the in the temple is King Ahaz. Of of Judah, when he you know, that's the that's the backstory for Isaiah seven, which we know very well with the promise of Emmanuel, but that the backstory is that Ahaz is is looking to make an, an alliance with the superpower of his day, Assyria. Isaiah says, "Don't do that. The Lord's going to take care of you." Ahaz does it anyway, and he he actually sends emissaries to Assyria to get a to get like a pattern of their pagan temple so that he can bring back those designs and import that into the temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem. So it really is. It's, I mean, when you see that just that very stark nature of the way that it's recorded and the way it happens in the old Testament, I think it, it is meant to open your eyes like, well, this is really bad. He should not have done that to, to then in our day and age where, you know, maybe there's not a, a building that we're quite as concerned about with that, but to see how idolatry would, what kind of effect would idolatry have within my heart? If I've got that image of, hey, this is what Ahaz did in the 700s 700 BC, then to recognize if any time I set up an idol in my own heart, that's how bad that is. it it really strikes it. I mean it it gets to it preaches to your heart just how bad idolatry is. I don't know if I'm saying it very well, but you get the point.
1: I do. yeah, I, t- I totally get the point. Uh, you know that there is there is certainly, yeah, that, that idea that uh, that the idols of this world, the gods of our age, um, can certainly come in and invade uh, our heart and draw away our affections. Uh, you know, it's you 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 can get in a you can get a picture, um, and I don't remember where I heard this, uh, and so I'm probably stealing somebody else's idea here, but uh, <laughs> the idea that if you had um, you know, a foreigner, and by foreigner I mean somebody that comes from, uh, from a, um, uh, from a place that's just completely outside, totally different culture, come into your into your city, and just look around. What is the conclusion they would come to as as what is the most important thing to you, uh, in your city? You know, what is the what is the thing that you have um, decided to to basically shows the the big industry or whatever you know and um and and more and it's usually not going to be the church um you know because quite frankly uh that's not usually the biggest building in town it may have been once upon a time but it's usually not um and it's also just not the thing that we spend our time and energy on uh it's other things uh and so that shows how often our hearts are drawn away from from that type of thing, is all of our time and our energy and effort is poured into this thing rather than that thing. If we we've united ourselves to that God, uh, while trying to ourselves still be united to the true God over here,
0: I might be mixing my metaphors here a little bit, but uh, you, you know you get the idea. Well, that's right. Paul uses a, a variety of images, so I think we can, too. Yeah, and I, I went back, and it's in 2 Kings 16, where it's it's actually King Ahaz himself who goes to Damascus and gets the model and sends it back to Jerusalem. So this is this is an awful thing. What's, what strikes me, and I, I read this in a, a commentary on, on 2 Corinthians, when it comes to this matter of, of the temple of God versus idols, you know, from the perspective of, of the Christian, you see how offensive this is. If you look at this from the perspective of the idols, though to add another god to the the pantheon isn't that big of a deal. I you mean, think about Paul in the city of Athens where he he goes up to the uh, the oh what's it? Mars Hill and and he finds this this idol to an unknown god. So like adding just one more idol to the the pantheon's not a problem from that side, but the the problem exists very much from the side of the true god. And when you when you put it that way, you do see how then for Paul and for any Christian to come along and proclaim in the context of idolatry, there's only one God, all these others are false. That's about the only thing you can say in the context of idolatry that's gonna really that's really going to b- bring the offense. And you can see why again Paul has the reaction that he does when he when he preaches like that. Right. Right. So we've got the the temple of God. Then what agreement has that temple with idols? And that's where Paul makes the turn. He says, "We are the temple of the living God." And then he begins to quote from the Old Testament. Uh, help us into the rest of verses sixteen and following.
1: Yeah, we have some some Old Testament uh, quotes here, or you know maybe paraphrases, um, but uh, but but roughly you have Isaiah 52, eleven quoted in verse uh, seventeen there. Therefore. Um, uh, well, okay, no, I should go back up first. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's that's a repeated refrain that we see in the Old Testament. Is this this promise that God gives to the people that I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. I'm like I'll I'll make my dwelling with you, um, and so that's that again is building off that idea of the temple. What is the temple or the tabernacle? Even going back further. Um, what does this mean? I'm with you uh, at all times, and I'm not going to leave you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Uh, so there is that tight connection he has with his own people. Uh, he's not a God far off. He's a God that is with his people.
0: Mm, yeah, and this is a, a theme that runs really throughout the entirety of the scriptures, that God would dwell with his people. starts in the Garden of Eden and goes all the way to the, the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people, and he works to make that so. And again, that is why idolatry, unbelief, has no fellowship, no partnership, nothing in common uh, with the, the Christian faith. So yeah, the, the cross-references in the Lutheran Study Bible suggest, especially Leviticus 26, for that. But as you said, it's a, a repeated promise throughout the Old Testament. Uh, verse 17, then, you said, was, was at least drawing from I- Isaiah, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. Isaiah fifty-two eleven. um, uh, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing. Uh, then I will welcome you. Um, you know, just again, it's, it's a general warning against idolatry. Um, you know, don't, uh, you know, there was obviously a very strict prohibition, uh, in, in the old Testament law from Moses that, that you stay away from things that are unclean. And, and God made that again because he wanted his uh, His people to remain faithful to him um, and not be uh,
0: find themselves united to idols. Hmm. Now, what about the last verse where Paul's referencing the Old Testament, uh, verse 18? I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty.
1: Yeah, again, um, a couple of places, you know, Exodus 4.22 is one of the places that it points to for this as well. Uh, there is that, uh, again, father and uh, son, um, uh, you know, imagery that's used throughout the scriptures to talk about God and his relationship with his people. Israel is often called the firstborn son of God, um, you know, which ultimately is alluding to Christ, the son of God. Uh, and again because we have been united with Christ then we have that status as uh, as sons and daughters of
0: of God yeah the the language of father and son also shows up when the lord makes the promise to david that he will have a son of his reigning on the throne forever that that son is to be you know again also a, a son of god which points to again christ so that, and I think the reason I, I just point that out because we were talking about some of the history of the kings. When you have those unfaithful kings, especially in the line of David, who lead the people after idolatry—that is to rebel against who they are to be as a a son of of the true God. Rather, they've they've followed after idols. It it just highlights how dangerous, dangerous of a rebellion that actually is, how severe of a rebellion that actually is, and then to to put the faithfulness of men like Josiah or Hezekiah before him. And in that contrast, they, they are living in what it means to be a true a son of, of the only God. Right, right. So the, the other thing that, and again, I've, I noticed this, this was pointed out in the commentary, the way that Paul starts this whole string of Old Testament references... Is with the language, as God said. There's a number of ways that the scriptures introduce Old Testament citations. Sometimes it is written, or the prophet said, but just the, the language that this is what God has said is a reminder of, of what the scriptures actually are. Now, granted, these are quotes from the mouth of the Lord himself, but th- that language, as, as he quotes from the scriptures and says, this is what God said, is a reminder that that the holy scriptures are not simply a, a book of written by men, but it is the the book that has been written by God. Yeah,
1: you know, right. Yeah, it, it's it's actually the word of God, the inspired, inerrant word of God. Um, so we're yeah we're not making this up. Uh, it's not it's not things that we imagine in our own head. Uh, you know, as we put this
0: together, yeah. That's right, that's right. Now, this is one of those places where the the chapter breaks that were inserted probably weren't inserted perhaps in the, the best place, because it does seem that 7 verse 1 goes along with what Paul has been saying at the end of chapter 6. Uh, so take us into the, the last verse of our section.
1: Yeah, it's it serves as a nice conclusion uh, to what we just said, and you're right, it's probably one of those places where we'd be better off uh, just ignoring that chapter mark there. Um, so, you know, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So obviously we don't actually, we, when we say we cleanse ourselves, um, you know, we know that our cleansing ultimately, our forgiveness comes from Christ alone. It's only by him that we are cleansed. But here again, I would kind of direct us back to that that same question on baptism from the small catechism that I, that I quoted earlier, uh, the idea that. As Christians, we daily drown the old Adam. We're daily raised to new life in Christ. And so this is the, the daily practice, really, of confession and absolution, um, that we, uh, we cleanse ourselves by uh, confessing our sins, that we may uh, be declared righteous once again before God in heaven by Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, and then uh, this idea of bringing holiness to completion, just the idea that we are, um, you know, daily growing in the spirit more and more like christ
0: Mm, yeah and that's connected to the fear of god which was mentioned back at in chapter 5 verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of god we persuade others tying a couple things together that we talked about this, this ministry of reconciliation comes through the proclamation of the word and we do that in the fear of god so not not doing it uh not not doing it in what again whatever way we come up with, but doing it in the way that God has given through the proclamation of His Word. I also notice that here he he does call them beloved in this verse. We have these promises beloved, as a, a reminder. As, as you said from the outset of our conversation, the the nature of this epistle is as one is uh, it has that same tone to it that as Paul has given very uh, direct instructions within this section. He does so not for the sake of being mean or for the sake of getting his own way, but for the sake of of these beloved Christians in Corinth. He would have them uh, remain true to the one true God in this ministry of reconciliation rather than fall away from it. And so he he gives these very direct, and and perhaps they seem difficult, but direct and loving instructions uh, for their sake, not out of some kind of mean spirit. Right, right, yeah. So, Pastor Vanderkoek, with about a minute here, help us to, to wrap things up on this text from 2 Corinthians 6 and 7.
1: Yeah, well, again, you know, the the context in which Paul is writing this, and perhaps we didn't address this at the outset, again, Corinth is, uh, is in Greece. Uh, they have um, unbelievers all around them, they have the influence of the pagan world all around them, and the temptation always is going to be there that uh, to kind of go along to get along, if you will, that uh, if we can kind of go along with some of the the pagan teachings and maybe even import some of pa- these pagan practices into into our um, into our practices, then we won't look so odd as as Christians. Uh, but really, the call to be uh, Christians is to uh, not only conform our uh, teaching to the Word of God, but also our lives our lives to the Word of God, our practice to the Word of God, uh, in such a way that. Um, uh, we make a good confession, uh, and and this this all centers back on that ministry of reconciliation. That if we're going to accurately uh, proclaim Christ as the crucified one who reconciles us to God in Himself, uh, then we need to make sure that our teaching is pure, uh, that our practice is right, um, in order that we not uh, bring about confusion by. Um, yoking ourselves to teaching and practice that is contrary
0: to God's Word. Mm-hmm. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to be here we have these promises, the promises of reconciliation, that Christ's righteousness is ours. Because of that, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us flee from defilement of body and spirit, but instead seek after the holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.